0: Welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, the second part of a three-programme series of interviews with the late Michael Wright, who died last month at the age of 105. I went to Michael's home in London last September and October, and he talked to me about his privileged childhood and later fighting as a volunteer officer in the Battle of Hong Kong. In this programme, he describes becoming a prisoner of war and why it was important to keep the mind busy.
1: They overcame Kowloon four days, and that's quite an interesting side story because we mobilised on the Sunday. On the Thursday, we were a bit worried. Chinese other ranks, they had family, and it had been arranged that the families of these people when they were mobilised were given accommodation provided by the government so that they were well looked after. But they were on on Kowloon's side, and one of my jobs was to go into town and go to Kowloon to see if these families were being well looked after and comfortable. And when I got to Hong Kong, I'd driven in my car, I was crossing the harbour, and um, obviously things were not going as well as we thought they were. I was crossing the harbour, and a shell came over the ferry, and then another shell came and landed that well, the first one landed that way. Next one landed this way, and this was a normal drill, you know, range finding. And the third one, you got the range right, and there should be a hit. And I thought, well, my God, now they're going. To, what do I do? I was the only person in uniform on the ferry. And I thought, if they, if it's hit, you know, I will have to sort of try to take command or do something about it. Well, luckily, the coxswain of the ferry. Decided that discretion was the better part of that. Let it turned round and went back to Hong Kong. And so we never crossed the harbour.
0: When you have a shell close by, what does it sound like?
1: You don't hear anything, you just hear the splash. You just, just hear, hear, hear the splash. Got back to Hong Kong Island and then I made inquiries about the families and nobody seemed to know much about them. And then I went to my flat and I picked up a couple of books to take I thought this was going to be a long war I might as well have something to read so I picked up um, So you went home? I went, yes, I went up the car to my flat in Conrad Road and picked up three books
0: What but, were they? Do you remember? There were
1: Churchill's speeches, which I still have A book of poems A Dream in the Luxembourg by um, Richard Aldington The third one was Essays by G.K. Chesterton and They were a mixture of books which survived the war and I still got them because they took them in the camp and they're very useful in the in the, and particularly the um the speeches of Churchill because we had a, a second rate actor who was one of the officers of the Royal Scots. Well I say second rate, he was a you know, a bit active and he would read these speeches with almost Churchillian tones and he, he I didn't mind this, he'd marked the book with, to accentate, accent things this and there, and there were quite a lot of these readings of these um, Churchill speeches. And so the book I value very much, I've still got uh, annotated by this Pat- potato Jones.
0: Potato Jones.
1: Yes, he was. A, he was a, um, a Royal Scott officer who had been an actor in civilian life.
0: Why was he called potato? Because I think
1: there was a, I think there was somebody in the um, Spanish Civil War who became f- quite famous. For what reason, I don't know. This again, just before the war broke up, and he was known as Potato Jones, and this got stuck to this um, <laughs> this man in the Royal Scots.
0: Did you have any nicknames in camp?
1: I didn't have one, no.
0: And, uh, Not that
1: I know of, anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you've returned to Conduit Road, you've got these three books. You then head back to Appley Chow. I, I
1: then went, went, went back to Chow and had heard that there had been an attempted landing by the Japanese from Lama and our Chinese troops were very upset because I don't think it was an attempted landing at all. I think it was a, some, the junks, fishing junks, junks in Lama wanted to get back to Aberdeen, which was their home port and I think they were simply crossing the Lama Channel. In order to get back to Aberdeen, but the people in headquarters, more headquarters, um, got the report of these pads coming over reckoned it was a um, an invasion and gave all MTBs were taken out, called so into position to sink them, and we were told to fire at them. And uh, I was I wasn't present, but we we did fire at them. And so they, MT,
0: MTBs were motor torpedo motor boats. Torpedo boats.
1: And, um, of course, then the poor people in the fishing boats turned around and went back to Lama. He could, and, uh, and, uh, then, and some of them were sunk. And our Chinese troops were very, very concerned because um, these were their, their countrymen being treated in this way. I think it was a genuine mistake by military headquarters. And I'm, I'm quite sure that they were genuine fishermen trying to trying to get back.
0: So you're back in Lei Chow. Those batteries were used actually with a view to a seaborne invasion. I know uh, that uh, around Hong Kong Island when when people realised that, you know, that it's largely going to be land, did any of those w- was there an attempt to turn any of those uh, guns it, it around
1: or and I was very lucky there were two batteries were turned into infantry to the end and the first battery which was on Cape Dagular. And they were pulled out, and I think they act, fought as infantry in the last day of the war at Stanley. And, of course, they weren't trained as infantry, and I think about 50% of them were killed. We were told to stand by to be also turned into infantry, but they always were concerned about a possible landing from Nama, and so we were kept in our battery position. But first battery had very severe casualties because they were used as infantry, completely unchained.
0: Did you have a state of permanent apprehension, or did you...?
1: No, I think I got very philosophical about it. This was a war, uh, with any luck I'll survive. There was comradeship, which helped a lot. We were all mates together and supported each other in a way.
0: At the end of, you know, when um, Hong Kong surrenders on the 25th of December 1941, what sort of impact was that having on you in Appley Chow?
1: on Christmas Day in the morning, I can remember... We got a phone call from our main headquarters, a message from Churchill that we were to fight for the last man. Yeah, we were quite prepared to do that if necessary. And then uh, we, nothing happened during the day. I could see the peak being bombed by the Japanese and the, our house, that house of pictures of it here, uh, being on fire. Um, I could see it from, from Aplichau. Actually, my parents had, in fact, sold the house. It was no longer our house, but I could see it burning away. Then, at night, we noticed cars on Hong Kong Island with headlights on. And so an officer in one other rank went across from Chow to a naval headquarters one of the school in Aberdeen and went down there to see what's happening. And the naval commander there said, you better get rid of those rifles because didn't you know we surrendered at three o'clock in the afternoon. They left their rifles behind, came back, and said, you know, this was seven o'clock at night. So we surrendered at three o'clock this afternoon. And so we spent the rest of the night taking our guns to bits. We couldn't blow up the guns, but we took all the breech mechanism and the working parts and carried them down and dumped them in the sea. We took all our ammunition, quite a lot of this foreign guns, ammunition, because we were about 150 feet above sea level. We had a pathway down. We dumped all these into the, into the sea and spent most of the night doing that.
0: How did you feel when you understood that um, the command had come through to surrender?
1: Well, it was a very definitely relief, because I think that there was little likelihood of surviving if we were sent off as infantry. And one just had to uh, just one person actually committed suicide at the prospect of being a prisoner. But most of us, you know, just took things as they come. And we had about three days in this Aberdeen Industrial School waiting for instructions what to do next. Because we didn't quite know what was happening. And we then got instructions to march into Hong Kong and go to Murray Barracks. So we spartened ourselves up and we marched as a battery from Aberdeen to Murray Barracks. And the Chinese were very sympathetic. There was no staring anything like that as we marched through past the Queen Mary Hospital, Pockfordham Road, and across the Middle Gap Road. The Chinese were very sympathetic. Well, mind you, we had uh, the Chinese troops, were so mainly Chinese troops who were with us. And uh, got to Mary Barracks in the evening. And next morning we were told to fall in and we all marched down and got on ferries. Didn't know where we were going. The rumour was we were going to go to Canton. But we got up and we marched up Nathan Road and continued on our way, if you like, to Canton. But we stopped at Trencher And there was a big army barracks there that had been built in the 1930s. And we were all pushed in there, and that's where we started our life as prisoners.
0: When you left at Blei Chow, what was your battery called? I mean, within the volunteers, what was that division called? We
1: were your fourth battery.
0: Fourth battery?
1: Yeah. Yes, first battery was at Cape Dagula near Big Wave Bay, second battery was at Stanley, Bluff Head, third battery was me and um, um, Aberdeen. And fourth battery was by Laimun. by Laimon, Ly- Laimon Oh,
0: right, yes, of course. Yes. That would have been a key one, too. Yes. And
1: uh, they got And they got caught very quickly when the Japanese attacked. So, uh, Laimon... There had been heavy casualties in fourth battery. They were, you know, set upon by the uh, Japanese. They crossed the harbour.
0: So which battery were you in Aplei Chow? Third
1: battery. Third battery. Third
0: battery, um, yes. In In Aplei Chow. And you were 60 men?
1: About, with four gun detachments and each gun detachment would be eight or ten people. And then we had searchlight operators.
0: So you had searchlight, were those those, so you had big up-into-the-sky type?
1: Uh, searchlights. Yes. yes. We searched for sea, not the, not the sky. Oh, of course, but yes. But the same idea, they, they yes. were big, very, very, very bright lights and they were searching all, all night there, beyond searching round.
0: So, when you're marching all the way up to Champtocé, this is about three days after the surrender. No. Are you just your battery, or no? The
1: whole the whole garrison, led by the general. We had four infantry regiments: there the Royal Scots, and Middlesex, who were both British; two Canadian infantry battalions, plus the volunteers. And then plus, especially things like Royal Engineers, Royal column and Signals and so on. And so this was the whole garrison of of Hong Kong. There must be about 10,000 people, led by the general and his senior officers. And what was the
0: general's name, do you recall?
1: Maltby. Well, I think he was a very nice man. I don't think he was a great general, with all due respect to him. But then I think he hadn't got much chance. You know, I don't think he had got some pretty untrained troops because the trained troops had already been brought back to England
0: So you arrive at Shamshipo and how much interaction are you having with Japanese military at that point?
1: Well what it was, we, we arrived at Shamshipo and um, it had been quite badly damaged during the war um, And what
0: was, remind me what Shamshipo was?
1: Well Shamshipo there was a big uh, increase in the Hong Kong garrison in, in the um, 1930s and this big camp at Shemshippo was built for a battalion, a British battalion. They were concrete block huts, you know, for the pro- proper hut single single story. And I suppose there are rows and rows and rows of these huts. At the far end there's a block of flats which had been put um, up, I think, for officers part part of the garrison. So that was included within this prison camp area. And um, we were all in there and just left to our own devices. And I spent the first night just on the ground sleeping Then found big sacks. And I don't know what they were for, but anyway, I managed to collect four for myself, which I made a little little bed, you know, laid on the ground so I wasn't on the hard thing. And I, this was invaluable the whole time I was in the prison camp. These sacks were invaluable. And it was each man for himself and then the general and the... The senior officers got things sorted out. I was put in a a flat, I think, with about eight other people. And we had two rooms, the bathroom and the loo, which was quite nice. And we were there for about three months, fairly comfortable. And then the officers were moved to a separate camp in Argyle Street. And then we started all over again in wooden huts, sleeping on the floor and slowly getting ourselves comfortable. And we were there for the next two years.
0: So... As an officer, can you remind me what was your rank in the volunteers? I was a
1: second-left and then after two years you become automatically a full-left tenant.
0: But this meant that you didn't go on work parties?
1: It that we didn't do work parties. We had to do our own jobs within the camp. I did a lot of jobs for about a year. I was number one of a gang of about 20 of us who were doing camp repairs, leaking roofs. They were wooden we built a hospital. I've got some drawings I could show you sometime the hospital we built, the hospital operating theatre, the operating table and the lights were all made by me and my gang. And then I did that for about a year or 18 months. And then the commanding officer, a senior British officer in the camp, said that I was getting too tired and that he was relieving me of this job. And so I volunteered to work in the hospital. The hospital, we had two medical service doctors trained in having to do without the best of things. We had a ward master from the Navy, and the rest of us were volunteers. All the orderlies were people like me. Not, they were not trained. We had about 10 orderlies. One week you were on number one on the ward, which meant you did the temperatures and and you know, semi school jobs. The next week you might be on um, collecting the food, a bucket of rice and a bucket of vegetables and dishing it out the next week would be the bedpans and sweeping the floor and so we had a rotations and the beauty of it was got away from a hut with 40 people in it and about that space between each bed and into a bigger room with only eight of us all friends all working together in the hospital and so it was about much pleasanter time and I was doing that when, when the war finished. I was working in the hospital when the war finished. And one skilled job was um, in my room at that time, we were getting towards the end of the war and the Japanese were bringing in some um, uh, nicotinic acid which is a, a vitamin B substitute and we, we had one needle for everybody. Oh. I had half an hour's instruction on injecting a cucumber and then I was let loose on the
0: And with the same I mean with the same needle did you have same,
1: same needle.
0: How did you sanitize it?
1: We had a frame and boiling water.
0: Now, did you, um, you, you describe it? I mean, there was beriberi, there would have been malaria. Um, did, what did you have while you were a prisoner of war?
1: Not so much malaria, uh, but beriberi, which was another of the deficiency diseases where eyes went. A lot of people went, one or two went completely blind, but a lot of people got to the stage when they couldn't read, their eyes got so bad and the legs would fatten up with surplus water and things were called electric feet. And I never suffered from electric feet. I lacked acute pins and needles which they couldn't control, and the only way was to put your feet in cold water or something. That was the other rags. I think that because they had to go out on working parties, they would parade at about half past four, five o'clock in the morning and go out do labouring work, mainly sending in Kai Tak Airport, and come back at five o'clock at night, six o'clock at night, having worked very, very hard on a minimum diet, just rice and veg no no protein at all so they all, most of them, all of them got these deficiency diseases whereas we didn't have it in the in the office, we had the same food, uh, you know, no protein just r- rice and veg and rice and veg and the veg was mainly chrysanthemum leaves just boiled chrysanthemum leaves
0: When you were told that you were surrendering on December the 25th 1941 you're then taken to Shamshipo and then on to argyle street we all know with history that it was three years eight months but what was your mindset at the time well
1: i can remember walking with a friend of mine quite early on in the early days and we reckoned two years and then after singapore fell we opted to two and a half years well the important thing was to keep yourself occupied you know and it doesn't matter what you did as long as you did something see a few people in the early days Quite a lot of people just gave up the ghost and died. But the oh, you n-
0: say that was just literally depression?
1: Yes, yes, and boredom, and they couldn't smoke. And the whole t- yeah. the whole time in the prison camp, there was a black market in cigarettes. funny so that's a heavy drink, because didn't worry them. They 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 didn't drink. And there was no attempt to get alcohol, but cigarettes. There was a continual trade with the Japanese sentries. With cigarettes and anybody who got gold teeth, gold watch, gold anything, you could sell it to the sentries. And sensible people would buy dried fish or some um, beans through the sentries, but most of them just bought cigarettes. Did you ever smoke? I used to smoke, not not heavily. I had quite a big architectural practice in the prison camp. People would get me to design a house for them. I mean, all for nothing, but I used to charge a cigarette per, per interview.
0: So you designed their houses?
1: Well, the designs, I don't think they ever built. Important was just to just keep yourself occupied.
0: Your character, would you say, is, uh, does it lean towards being positive?
1: I think so, yes. I, I took this an opportunity to learn to write Chinese. And, and all, all the time I was in the prison camp, I was always doing something.
0: So you would do
1: your architectural drawings. I did. did yeah, I had this little architectural practice.
0: What did you call yourself?
1: <laughs> no, I didn't call myself anything. But uh, well, the you know, people would come along. They were designing their own houses, and they would come along for help.
0: And so, I mean, did you have paper?
1: They, they were quite. They, we could get paper. Yes, we get paper. The Japanese were quite good with uh, with paper. About once a month, they brought in a canteen, and you could buy things like toilet paper and pencils and uh, little things like that. The man who ran this thing had been a barber in the Hong Kong Hotel and he was quite a shock to see. There was the man cutting my hair and he came in into a Japanese uniform with this lorry with things for us to buy.
0: And, um, I mean, throughout that time, and when, when you look back, I mean, it was three years, eight months, you were a relatively young man. Were you afterwards a bit embittered at this lost time in your life? No.
1: No, because I think I kept myself doing things, whether it was learning Chinese, designing buildings, I kept myself occupied the whole time. I was quite glad when he got out. Though, in a way, I was giving some lectures on building construction, to one or two the batmen batman actually we had we had other ranks as batman i was really in, in a way got involved with this and i quite quite sorry when the war finished what interfered with my course of instruction you know, you got very much involved with what you were doing i mean obviously I, it was a very passing regret but the important thing is uh, as long as you kept yourself mentally occupied it wasn't a hardship
0: with Singapore falling, how did you know about that?
1: Because the Japanese brought in a newspaper with the news. If it was bad news, they would always bring in a newspaper. We had a system where we were having a Chinese newspaper smuggled in. I think brought in by one of the centuries, And there was a man called Ken Barnett who was a, an oddball in the way with a brilliant Chinese scholar, and he began translating this newspaper. And one day he approached me and said, what's your shorthand speed? And I said, I think about 40 words a minute. Well, he said, I think I can read the newspaper at about that speed. Do you mind coming with me? And, um, and there was my senior officer, my battery commander, was also learning shorthand with me. And the two of us, we took it in turns, and we were going with us up Ken Barnett, into a hut, and he could read this paper and we literally took it down in shorthand and then we would go round the huts to read the news which was the news of the Japanese papers but it did give the European news and the Russian front news genuinely. I mean as far as the um, Japanese news there are always great victories but we noticed the victories got nearer and nearer Japan <laughs> but on the uh, European front they were genuine.
0: Your memory is superb, but I'm asking you to go back seventy two years. When you heard that the war was over, what were your emotions?
1: Dead. You know, I think one was so mentally controlled. Nobody they just good God, you know, definitely surrendered. It it was that. There was no cheering, no excitement at all. I think we had just got so much control over our emotions at the time in the prison camp. There was there was no great excitement. The, the main excitement was the Japanese brought in a lot of alcohol, brought in bottles of whiskey, bottles of gin, bottles of vermouth. The senior officers who were running the camp didn't let anybody else get to the bottle. We, we could queue up and get a ration of whiskey, and at steam uh, with that, a few people drank too much and had to have stomach pumps to get them, but most people drank sensibly. And we celebrated with a couple of whiskey waters. We knew the war was over, because we saw the the Japanese sentries, they, all they began being very friendly, and also um, we saw them in front of a listening to a broadcast table with a white cloth on it, and clearly there was something going on. Then One or two people had been on working parties, other ranks were shouting across the walls over. We were getting a newspaper smuggled in. That had the Emperor's Speech, had a text of the Emperor's Speech, and so when the officer, Japanese officer came in, we had to be counted twice a day. It was 9 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the evening. We had to fall in and be counted. 9 o'clock, the camp commandant, Japanese officer, came in and our senior British officer said, there won't be a parade today. And this camp commandant said, why? He said, because the war's over. And so he said, no, what we want, we want the number one Colonel Takenaga. We want to, want him this afternoon to come in and we wanted proper food, we wanted working parties to go out to collect um, proper food, and you got to lay this on, and just gave a lot of instructions, and we stayed in the the camp for another week or ten days, because very sensibly we weren't allowed out. We were allowed out in in proper organised parties to get food, and also they quickly arranged uh, for about 30, 40, going out each day to Stanley, to see their wives and relatives and so on in, in the in civilian camp. This was organised very, very quickly. And, and uh, right at the end, <clears throat> after two weeks, I, I had no you know, relatives in Stanley, but um, I had friends there, and so I qualified at the end end of August to go on a, a trip to Stanley, which was quite exciting. And particularly when, when we were there, the fleet came in. We had lorries with the Japanese driver, and we were just in the back of the lorry and get shipped off to Stanley. And coming back, though, instead of coming into the Tsar ferry, we went into the dockyard, which had been occupied by the Navy. These sailors were great. They had got sand sandwiches and lemonade, sensibly no alcohol. But ham sandwiches, no, about twenty twenty-five hours just caused ourselves <laughs> stupid with, um, uh, and then, then we. Um,
0: so ham sandwiches and lemonade provided by.
1: By the navy, by these sailors.
0: So they were Americans I, or British?
1: They, they were British. From from the, the the fleet came in, and big deal a couple of battleships and an aircraft carrier. It was a wonderful treat, the Hong Kong Harbour with this really big far-eastern fleet there. I had quite an amusing story. My mother, who was a leading light in the Nottingham Women's Institute, one of these women's things, and when her people who were in this organization heard that her son had been released from Hong Kong, they gave her a a big bunch of chrysanthemums to celebrate it. Well, when I was leaving, I wrote wrote to her and I said, you know, I was fine and well, but I'd um, um, I'd lived mainly on them. riced and boiled chrysanthemum leaves which was true so my mother had got a letter from the colonial office to say that her son had been a prisoner and he might be a bit odd but don't worry, he'll get over it and will become quite normal after a short time and she looked at this letter and she thought that I'd be eating chrysanthemum leaves and um, then of these chrysanthemums that she had got <laughs> and uh, she, she hid the chrysanthemums And after 24 hours we found out it's quite normal So she pulled out the satsum to tell me the story
0: My thanks to Michael Wright talking there on his experiences as a prisoner of war here after the fall of Hong Kong. In next week's final programme of this three-part series, Michael Wright talks about how he oversaw the huge project of Hong Kong's post-war public housing. They didn't want another fire like the Shepkit Bay
1: one. I mean, they were very, very dangerous, these squatter areas. They got electricity there, they had exposed wires, they were very, very dangerous. They had
0: other fires,
1: but never as bad as the Shepkit Bay one.
0: early housing was rudimentary. Mr. Wright, who died on January the 26th, was keen for Hong Kong people to have human dignity and privacy with toilets and washing facilities. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.